Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. I have been working on a big project now for quite some time, and I'm so thrilled that I finally get to share it with you. My newest book, Love Every Day is now available for pre-order. This book is in a different format than my previous books. So for each date of the year, I offer a short thought-provoking reflection and or practice that will help you cultivate relational self-awareness so that you can heal and grow all year long. Each daily practice in Love Every Day will help you understand the impact of your past and your partner's past, get your needs met, enhance intimacy, improve communication, and address relationship problems. For those of you who've been a part of my Instagram community for a long time and have been enjoying my short musings on all things relationships, I think this format is really going to resonate for you and create an enhanced version of this experience in a beautiful, giftable book. It even has a fancy little ribbon to keep your place as you read throughout the year. Whether you're single, in a relationship, or between relationships, Love Every Day invites you to develop awareness, curiosity, and empowerment so that you can be seen and loved as your most authentic self and heal from times when you weren't. If you are ready to embark on a years-long journey of self-reflection and inquiry, this book will be your trusty guide, and I think you're really going to notice how you and your relationships flourish throughout the year as you cultivate this daily practice. I hope you will grab a copy for your own nightstand, for your loved ones, and for your friends. To pre-order the book now, visit the show notes of this episode or go to loveeverydaybook.com. Happy reading. Hi there. Welcome back to another solo deep dive episode on Reimagining Love. Today, I'm finally going to speak to a topic that I have received a lot of DMs and emails and listener questions about, which is advice and guidance for a long-distance relationship. So this is obviously a big topic. I'm not going to cover every iteration and all of the dynamics today, but we got a lot of ground to cover, and I'm going to focus us mainly on five strategies that are guided, of course, by relational self-awareness, five strategies that are designed to help you and your partner feel really good and strong and vibrant in your long-distance relationship. And by the way, I may or may not refer to long-distance relationships as LDRs from here on out. I reserve the right to refer to them as LDRs. 
So you're not going to be surprised at all that these five strategies I'm going to offer you do not fall into the, you know, kind of theme of do this, don't do this. Because first of all, you may already have come across, you know, tips like that in your Google search. But also, that's not really how I do things around here, is it? I'm going to more so explore what might be getting activated inside of you in your long-distance relationship and then how to navigate the, the stir, the challenge, perhaps in a different way. And we're also not going to talk at all. We're not going to debate at all or talk at all about the pros and cons of LDRs. There certainly are pros and cons to LDRs. There are risks and benefits because there are pros and cons, risks and benefits of every single possible relationship architecture under the sun. So this conversation that we're about to have is predicated on the notion that your LDR is neither better nor worse than a co-located relationship. (laughs) By the way, co-located is the fancy schmancy term that researchers use to refer to couples who live in the same area. So we're just not even going to go there. We're not even debating better, worse, weaker, stronger, more likely to succeed, more likely to fail. That's not going to be our angle because really we're coming at this from a place of you are in an LDR by necessity or by choice. Where do we go from here? Where do you go from here? And also, as we oftentimes do, we've made a companion worksheet for you for this episode if you are a newsletter subscriber. So you will be getting that companion worksheet in your inbox. And if you'd like to join the weekly newsletter, you can head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash subscribe. So most importantly, long distance relationships are not a monolith. They're not just like some big general bucket. And the dynamics within your particular LDR are determined by a lot of factors. I'm going to identify 10 relationship features that I think pretty powerfully shape how couples feel within their LDR. Each of these relationship features adds a dynamic that becomes either the wind at your face you know, adding a bit more stress and strain, or the wind at your back, reducing stress and strain. And perhaps each of these factors, I think, holds the power to make your LDR feel more aligned or more difficult. So again, notice how I'm saying that. I'm not saying like, you know, if when you look at these factors, you know, one by one, it seems like for each of these, y'all are kind of coming down on the side of this is harder. I'm not saying to you that means you are more likely to break up. I am saying to you that if you look through these 10 factors and it kind of feels again and again, like, okay, that one makes it hard. Okay, that one makes it hard. Okay, that one adds strain. Then that just is an opportunity for you to validate for yourselves that this is hard because it's hard, because there are some actual logistical complexities at work here that make this feel hard. So again, we're not going to indulge in like being predictive, you know, and saying what's going to happen. We're more so just trying to honor the ways in which when you are geographically separated, there can be stuff that makes stuff that makes it harder beyond just geographic separation. 
So I really want you, as I talk through these 10 features, I really want you to consider how each of these features operates in your relationship. And I want you to kind of view this as like an assessment tool. It's a tool for assessment of your relationship and reflection on your relationship and the emotional experiences you're having. Okay, so first of all, for some couples, this LDR chapter is time-limited. For other couples, this LDR chapter is open-ended. And I can see how if the two of you are in an LDR, it's open-ended, you both would prefer to be geographically in the same place, but you don't know whether, when, and how that will happen. What that means is the two of you are living with more ambiguity. You're living with a bigger question mark in the space between you. You are living with a bit more liminality, right? You're in a liminal space if it's time limited, but it's a liminal liminal space if it's if you're geographically separated and you really don't know when it's going to be any different. So again, not saying that anybody is doomed, just saying I can see how an open-ended LDR can feel like you are being asked to sit with an awful lot of ambiguity. Okay, number two, is your LDR happening by choice or by necessity? Here, I could imagine a scenario where if the LDR is happening by necessity, for example, I frequently do work with military couples. Well, military couples very often become geographically separated by necessity because one is going on deployment. And I think when when an LDR chapter is happening by necessity, you got to go here to do this thing for X amount of time, there can be a kind of acceptance that comes from that. Certainly, any of us can be guilty of arguing with reality at any moment in time, but there's a way in which it's like, it's got to be this way that can help you just sort of ease into it. Versus by choice, if somebody's choosing to move away or you're choosing to be separated, that just perhaps opens the door for why. Why is this thing that you're doing in another city, in another state, in another country, why is that taking priority over us building our relationship? I'm not saying that necessarily is what happens, but I'm saying that could open the door. The element of choice, right, could raise the question of why are you choosing that over me? And that is most likely not the most helpful question to be asking, right? We never, we want to, to the degree we can, avoid positioning ourselves, you know, it's me or X. When we find ourselves doing that positioning, looking at our partner and saying, it's me or it's this, why are you choosing this over me? We're creating a pretty simple story around something that is more complicated. So if your LDR is being driven by choice, for example, your partner is choosing to move away, making a choice to move away, to go do that thing, to go be nearer to you know, something else, how might you be able to reframe it for yourself rather than they're choosing that over me? Maybe the question becomes or the framing becomes how do I continue to feel valued even as my partner makes this choice? How do we continue to nourish this relationship even as my partner makes this choice? Three is whether or not you've had a chapter of living in the same place before your long distance versus a relationship that begins as long distance. 
And here again, I think, you know, we could probably make an argument for how this could cut either way. But I think when you've had a chapter together before you've been separated, there's a foundation there. There's a foundation of familiarity, of routine, of ritual that you are stepping away from that might become a bit easier to step back into on your visits. So you might be able to kind of more readily establish flow together if you had a chapter of being a couple in the same city, in the same place before you move to different places. Versus if you're a couple that began your relationship as long distance, you're building something from nothing. Again, nothing wrong with that, but I would want the two of you to wonder what's the impact on us that we've never ever lived in the same city. We've never ever been in the same place. How does that shape the dynamics? What does that mean that we need or is especially important for us during our visits, given that we've never had the opportunity yet to share the same city, to share the same town? Okay, four, degree of commitment. Because geographic separation can be a strain. I would imagine that the more committed a couple is going in to a long-distance relationship, the easier it is to use that commitment to keep you motivated, to keep you connected, to keep you trying in the face of the challenge and the strain versus going into a long-distance chapter feeling relatively loosely committed to each other. I think the the stronger degree of commitment can make that chapter of long distance feel a bit easier because you're anchoring yourselves in to the commitment. Okay, five, the degree to which there's a discrepancy between the two of you regarding commitment. This one feels pretty obvious to me that if one of you is deeply committed to making this work and the other one is like, I don't know, we'll see, that's going to make it harder, right? For the one who is, I don't know, we'll see, When things get difficult, it may be harder for them to anchor themselves into the commitment. So I could see how a commitment discrepancy is hard for any couple. A commitment discrepancy that gets layered on top of a long-distance relationship could add, you know, quite a bit of wind to a couple's face. Number six, stage of life, I think, can shape how a couple experiences a long-distance relationship. Being long-distance immediately after college feels quite different than being long distance while raising children, either children together or your own separate children, versus being long distance as you head towards retirement. I want you to be curious and mindful about the ways in which the stage of life that you are in when you are in this long distance relationship is shaping how the long distance relationship feels. It's also shaping how the people around you are talking to you about your long distance relationship. Are they giving you the message that this is worth it? Are they giving you the message that you're trying too hard to make something work that really isn't worth trying? So that stage of life, stage of development can shape not just how the two of you feel about it, but how the people around you feel about it. And that can shape the degree to which this feels you know, easier versus harder. Number seven is the degree to which there's a discrepancy between the two of you in terms of life stage. I see this a lot with my college students as they're very often when I'm teaching college seniors, I'm in conversation with them about whether and how to transition a college relationship into a post-college relationship. And so lots of these couples are going to be entering a chapter of long distance. And one of the things that I want them to be mindful of is that they're about to enter a time 
when they are both trying something new, which is figuring out how to be a post-college adult. And very often, they're for the very first time in really different realms because partner A is starting a graduate school program and partner B is starting a job. So you've got three things happening at once. One, a life stage transition. They're both in that. Two, a geographic separation. And three, for the first time ever, they're in different realms. One is just figuring out how to be a grad student, and the other is just figuring out how to be a worker. Again, each of those, you know, is a strain on its own, and those strains can operate synergistically. That just needs to be factored in and talked about. And the question then becomes, how do we continue to support ourselves and each other as we make these key transitions and as we, for the first time ever, experience realms that are quite different from each other's realms? Number eight, your attachment strategies. Somebody who tends to be a bit more avoidantly attached may find a long-distance relationship a bit easier than somebody who tends to be a bit more anxiously attached. So there may be a difference. If if that is a difference for the two of you anyways in your relationship, that difference may be highlighted when you are long-distance. Number nine is your love languages. Somebody whose love language is physical touch may have a particularly hard time with the challenges of long distance, whereas somebody whose love language is words of affirmation may not have quite as difficult of a time. So your love languages and the differences between the two of you on love languages can shape how each of you experience your LDR. And then number 10 is the feasibility of visits. How easy is it for you guys to get to each other? And that may have to do with just how far apart you are, just how demanding your lives are in your respective hometowns. And obviously it depends on financial resources, how easy, you know, how financially feasible is it for you to be visiting each other? There again, if it's really, if travel is difficult, if travel is not financially possible, that just adds a bit more wind to your faces. And the question is even more important. How will we care for each other and connect to each other across these miles, given that it's not particularly feasible for us to get across these miles? So my hope is that it feels helpful and validating for you to hear me talk through these features and how they might be affecting the degree to which you and your partner feel connected versus conflictual as you navigate your LDR. And as you assess your particular LDR, maybe you feel validated because it's hard because a lot of the features in your LDR create added stress and opportunities for misunderstanding. If so, ask yourselves and each other the following questions. One, how can we practice more acceptance and compassion around the elements that we cannot control? Two, what can we actually control, change, modify within our situation? Three, what might be keeping us from making tweaks that we could actually make? And four, how can we remove those barriers and actually make some changes, at least try it out, and see how those changes might reduce our stress and create more connection? So there's four questions that you can use as you sit with your unique profile of strains and advantages around your LDR. Okay, so I next want to talk to you about how the central theme of a long-distance relationship is navigating togetherness versus separateness, which is, by the way, 
the central theme of all intimate relationships. How much are we a we? What does it mean to be a we? What are the boundaries? What are the expectations? How do we honor our individual desires and needs while nurturing the space between us? So every single couple needs to wrestle with these questions in an ongoing way. But in a long-distance relationship, these questions become stark and concrete. Who is traveling to whom and how often? How much and what kind of communication takes place between us? And it is the starkness and the concreteness that gives you a chance to work intentionally and collaboratively on your boundaries and on your expectations in a way that can serve your individual growth and your relational health. So what I'm saying here is that every couple has to work on how much are we a we versus how much are we two separate individuals. And you all, by the fact that you are a long-distance couple, you are forced to, you are invited to, you are challenged to really work on that because you have to, because you are separated. And therefore, it is really concrete and clear who's going to whom, who's communicating with whom, who's initiating, how much, when, where, and how. So that all is just being brought into the forefront for you to work on together, which is ultimately a very, very good thing. I also want to highlight that you are not alone. As a long-distance couple, you are not alone. In fact, you share something in common with three other types of couples that intentionally choose to parse out what needs and expectations are brought to the relationship and what needs and expectations are taken elsewhere. First of all, you have some kinship with the LAT couples of the world, the couples who um, are living apart together, LAT couples. LAT couples are committed to each other, but they have made the conscious and intentional choice to not share a home. They have separateness around domesticity. They have decoupled domesticity and intimacy. The difference between you all and the LAT couples is that in a long-distance relationship, there's a sense that this is a temporary state of affairs moving towards living together, at least living together in the same city, versus LAT couples, it is a status. They have decided we are together, but we do not live together. You also have some kinship with sleep divorce couples. A sleep divorce is when a couple sleeps in separate bedrooms due to an incompatibility like snoring or different bedtimes or one person being like a restless sleeper or a light sleeper. So sleep divorce couples have decoupled sleep and intimacy. They've decided that they have weeness. They are a we in other areas, but when it comes to sleep, they are too me's. They are on their own when it comes to sleep. They value separateness around sleep and togetherness in other areas. And by the way, sleep and intimacy can certainly be decoupled. I have known plenty of couples who share a bed without any intimacy. And I've known lots of couples who sleep apart and are quite intentional and robust when it comes to intimacy. And by the way, for the record, I am not a fan of calling it a sleep divorce because that term sleep divorce is intentionally catchy and dramatic. And people who've gone through an actual divorce don't need any additional drama around you know that term and their lives. Thank you very much. And number two, it sets couples up to feel scared 
that sleeping apart, that having separateness around sleep means their relationship is doomed. So that's just, I just need the record to show that. And then the third type of couples that you, as a long-distance couple, share some kinship with are consensually non-monogamous couples. And obviously, if you are a long-distance couple, you might also be a consensually non-monogamous couple, or you might be a sexually monogamous couple. But couples who practice consensual non-monogamy have decoupled, have disentangled monogamy and intimacy, right? Couples who are consensually non-monogamous have pulled apart separateness and togetherness around their sex lives. So I just am saying all of this because you are not alone. I think, you know, whenever, I don't like any of us to feel alone in the way that we are doing love. So I'm highlighting for you as a framing for our five strategies that we're about to get to, that you have kinship. You have kinship with other couples who are by choice or by necessity, also engaging in mindful dialogue about the design of their relationship. And I'm sharing this because the backdrop of your conversations about your LDR, the backdrop is the very clear and very present model that we are shown as the norm. And the norm is two people in the same town who are very invested in deepening commitment towards the goal of building a home together. So by its very nature, your long-distance relationship exists as a subversion of the so-called norm. That's the backdrop. The backdrop is couples should live in the same place. Your long-distance relationship subverts that norm. And whenever we deviate from the norm, we are at risk of telling ourselves a story that our choice is less than, less committed, less normal, less healthy, less viable. So I want you to be vigilant to those times when you might start to slip into that mindset because a conversation between the two of you that begins with the notion that you are doing something wrong is a conversation that ends up being steeped in shame. It's a conversation that begins behind the eight ball. And your long-distance relationship, as I've said, already has some amount of strain built into it based purely on geography. So I do not want you adding to the struggle. I really want you to recognize that so that your conversations begin from a place of strength and pride and possibility. Okay, five relational self-awareness informed strategies for you to bring into your long-distance relationship. Strategy number one, make space for differences in connection needs and preferences. Quick backstory on intimacy. There's one group of psychologists that tends to think of intimacy as an individual capacity or quality or trait, meaning that this group of psychologists believes that each of us can be assessed for how much closeness we crave or how much closeness we can tolerate, or how much closeness we place value on. 
And there's another group of psychologists that tends to think of intimacy as a relationship dynamic. So less so as a trait that lives inside of people and more so as a relational dynamic that plays out between people. So for example, somebody from this camp um, is a family therapist named Lyman Wynn. And Lyman Wynn defined intimacy as, quote, a relational experience that is characterized by mutual exchange in an ambiance of proximity and engagement between two people. Okay, well then, you're not going to be even a little bit surprised that my favorite way of thinking about intimacy is a way or a definition that captures both the individual capacity for closeness and the behaviors that take place between two people that build closeness. And that definition or that framework of intimacy comes to us from the feminist psychologist, Katha Weingarten, whom I adore. And she defines intimacy as co-created meaning that leads to coordinated action. Let me say it again. Intimacy is co-created meaning that leads to coordinated action meaning that you and I get to decide together what counts as intimacy, what feels like intimacy, what behaviors help us foster closeness. And whatever we come up with is a little bit of me and a little bit of you. It's what helps me feel close. It's what helps you feel close. And therefore, when we do that thing, we're kind of doing a little wink, wink to each other of, I got you. I get you. Like, this is the thing we do to feel close. I love that aspect of it. What I love about it is it reminds us that for a long-distance couple, intimacy is something that the two of you are going to have to play with, explore, and experiment with to figure out what feels like intimacy to you based on the unique soul that resides inside of each of you and based on the unique love story that the two of you are writing. So you cannot possibly follow a prescription for how many times a week you should be talking. You cannot possibly follow a prescription for how many texts you should be sending or how many minutes after waking up the good morning texts should be sent. You could not possibly follow a prescription for what topics you should be broaching at what time and why. How the two of you figure out how you're going to stay close and connected despite the miles between you is going to have to arise in the unique context of your relationship through trial and error. So especially when you're just starting your long distance chapter, experiment, play with it, go into this with the spirit of, you know, what the Buddhists call beginner's mind, with the spirit of adventure. You don't know. You don't know because you can't know. And because the only two people on earth who can figure it out are the two of you. So approach the sort of trial of how often are we talking? Is it, you know, are we using, how much are we using asynchronous modalities like Snapchat, like text, like email? How much are we using synchronous modalities like FaceTime, like a phone call, like a Zoom? What are we doing during that time? How long is the time? How frequently? Right? The, approach all of that as just an experiment where you are noting and sharing your findings. If you do that, it's going to help you counteract or work with something that is inevitable, which is that 
there's going to be whatever framework you come up with for how and when you communicate, right? That there's the framework, but then underneath the framework is all the sneaky meaning and all the sneaky emotion that bubbles up inside of each of you about that framework, right? For example, like I'm the one who initiates most of the calls. It must mean that I love them more. They're the one who tends to say goodbye first. It must mean that they aren't as serious about it. You know, I want to talk in the morning. They want to talk after work. It must mean, right? So notice all the ways in which you import a story on top of the framework. Just notice that because the stories matter, but the stories may not be accurate. And the stories may be how your anxious mind is attempting to make sense of this difficult chapter or this new chapter or this somewhat ambiguous chapter. I like the idea of the two of you sort of standing shoulder to shoulder, looking together at the question of how are we going to communicate? And then you make some agreements together. And then you try out those agreements and you tweak and adjust as necessary. If you have time differences, time zone differences, you may, one of the agreements may be that this week, you know, we work off of my preferred time zone. And next week, we work off of your preferred time zone, right? You may have to do something like that, like alternate the weeks. It may be that you have to tweak because one week I'm particularly busy at work. And so we've got to work around my schedule. And the next week, you're a bit busier at work. So we work around your schedule. So ebb and flow, trial and error. But the agreements need to be built from a shoulder to shoulder, looking together at how are we going to communicate in a way that helps us both maximize the freedom we have during the week and also maximize the connection with each other that we have during the week. And your needs are different, but having different needs does not prove (laughs) that one loves the other more, right? The one who wants longer conversations is not necessarily the one who loves the other one more. So getting into that battle of, I want more contact, that means I love you more, that, you know, slow yourself down and separate those two things. Quantity and frequency and length are not necessarily indicators of love. There could be lots of other factors at play. So keep an eye out for what other factors are at play. I do think that this is a a piece of valuable advice, which I like for long distance couples to think about two different kinds of conversations, both of which are important, but which likely need to be separate from each other. One type of conversation is just the kind of catching up, being silly, reminiscing, talking about the next visit. That's one type of conversation. The other type of conversation is relationship talk, status updates. How is this feeling to you? How is this feeling to me? Right? Sort of talking about us. Those are different kinds of conversations. And I really like the idea, especially for long distance couples, of being intentional about what kind of conversation are we having when. Because when a conversation slips into relationship talk, I think that can sort of catch people unaware 
And especially for somebody who tends to be a bit more avoidant or a bit newer at relationship dialogue, it can lead them to kind of tense up and shut down. And then the other one worries, they don't love me as much, they're not invested enough. No, they just were caught off guard. So be intentional about when are we just sort of doing catch up and when are we doing a little bit more of relationship check-in. Okay, strategy number two, say thank you instead of I'm sorry. So reciprocity is a big theme in intimate relationships, and couples can understandably be very sensitive to real and perceived imbalances in give and take. And in the future, we're going to do, for sure, an episode or a series on relationship reciprocity because it's so, so, so important. And for long-distance couples, reciprocity can feel very stark and very concrete and very obvious, especially around this question of who travels to whom. In fact, it's pretty common for there to be inequality around who travels to whom. And it may very well be the case that I am traveling to you more often than you are traveling to me because I am more invested in the relationship and because you actually do take me for granted because you actually do not hold me in warm regard. And if so, I really ought to take that data and figure out what I'm going to do about it. However, I might be traveling to you more than you are traveling to me because you have a dog and I don't, because you have other kinds of caregiving responsibilities and I don't, because you work until 5 p.m. on Fridays and I tend to have Fridays off because you live in a really special community that we love exploring, and my town is a bit more ho-hum by comparison. Because you don't have roommates, and I do. Because you are a nervous traveler, and I can bounce back pretty quickly from travel, right? And on and on and on. There might be lots and lots of really practical, really obvious reasons why I go to you more than you go to me. And probably in my best moments, I get it. I really do understand why we've created this arrangement, and I really do get how it works for both of us. But in my worst moments, in my insecure moments, I get scared that actually the fact that I travel to you does in fact mean that I'm more invested than you are, or that you don't appreciate my efforts. What's likely very helpful for us is when you thank me for making the trip and when you help me feel cozy in your space. Your appreciation of my efforts traveling to you is not the same thing as you owing me something. Your appreciation of my efforts to travel to you is not the same thing as me then having a leg up on determining how we spend our time together, right? It does not, your appreciation does not indebt you to me. That's unhealthy. And it's very likely helpful for you to thank me for making the trip instead of apologizing to me because I made the trip. This is the say thank you, not I'm sorry. It's very likely helpful for you to thank me for making the trip instead of you apologizing to me for making the trip. Your apology is going to reinforce the power imbalance that I'm somehow the victim and you're somehow taking advantage of me versus 
we together made a reasonable plan given the contours of our situation. And your apology, if you're apologizing to me for making the trip, that's centering. Your apology centers your guilt rather than celebrating my effort. When you say thank you, you're celebrating my effort. When you say I'm sorry, you are centering your guilt. And now we're, we're focusing on you. And now I'm helping you feel better after having also made this trip to come see you. So bottom line here is look for opportunities where both of you can be swapping out I'm sorry and instead saying thank you. Number three, tie your stir to your stuff. One of the most powerful things that you can do as a long-distance couple is, number one, reflect on your unique history throughout your life of hellos and goodbyes. And number two, get deeply curious about your partner's unique history of hellos and goodbyes. This is, this, this number three strategy of tying your stir to your stuff, this is the heart of that relational self-awareness strategy that I call ghost busting, sort of keeping an eye out for the ghosts in the room, the ways in which past pain points, past tender dynamics shape how each of you is experiencing this present moment. So an example from Todd and I, when we were in college, we were a long distance couple during the summers, right? We would separate for the summer and reunite again when, when school started. So this is, I'm, I'm going back a bit <laughs> historically, but the point stands and I have been using this example for many years in my teaching. So I will share it here with you. There was a pretty clear and obvious pattern for Todd and I that before we would separate uh, for the summer, I would just kick up a bunch of dust. I would pick fights. I would get picky. I would get irritable. I would get pokey. And when we connected the dots, it was pretty clear, like the ghost busting, talking about why do I get like this before we separate from each other, was pretty obvious that uh, I have a particular history and vulnerability around hellos and goodbyes, having grown up in a blended family. So every other week I would go um, leave my mom and my stepdad's house and go to my dad and stepmom's house. My life was full of cycles of hellos and goodbyes between both of my attachment figures. And so that, you know, wired me in some ways for a sensitivity to separation and the way that I would handle that sensitivity, at least at that point in my life, was by getting feisty and uh, grouchy. <laughs> so if you are listening and you are somebody who has gone through a divorce, especially if your parents has gone through divorce, you do not, don't take this part, you know, and, and beat yourself up around that because that's not something that you did to your kids, but that potentially becomes a feature of your kids' lives and it becomes their work. And every single parent who's ever raised a child gives their kid a set of emotional work that they need to do as a result of the experiences as they were growing up. So I am just naming for you all one of the features of what it meant to me to have grown up in a blended family. So what it means, what it has meant and what it means is that around separation and reunion, I need to practice a little bit of additional self-care, not just about how it feels right here, right now to say goodbye to somebody, but all the ways that little me needs a little bit extra tending and soothing and honoring. I need to go slow. I need to probably reduce expectations on myself around separation and reunion because that is a, a little bit of a tender spot. A former classmate and colleague of mine, Dr. Lynn Knobloch-Fetters, does research with military couples, and she studies 
how they cope with reunion following deployment. And one of the big findings that she has unearthed is that couples pretty predictably, when they're reunited after separation, they've got a a pretty solid four to five week maximum honeymoon period where they're back together, they're clicking along, they're happy to see each other. And then after that point, there's a pretty significant fall from grace. And this has been a helpful finding because it has meant then that military support for couples, it is most strategically placed, not during day three of the reunion, but during week three of the reunion, right? So so you are best, military couples are best served by having couple-based supports you know, start up around that honeymoon to help smooth the honeymoon. And this fits with research that has been done with long distance couples more broadly, some 2007 research from Stafford and Marola, who found that when couples go from being long distance to being co-located, what they report is that they really do suffer from the loss of autonomy and they suffer from quite a bit of annoyance. The biggest stressors, in other words, when a couple reunites after a long distance chapter, the biggest stressors are, I've lost some freedom and it's really kind of annoying to have you here all the time. So I name that because it's really helpful then for couples to know When you are coming out of your long distance chapter, when you are transitioning from being long distance to being in the same place, get yourself some support. Surround yourselves with some support. Um, Make time with friends, make time with family, perhaps do some couples therapy. Like have support around yourselves as you're moving from long distance to in the same place because there's quite a bit of research that suggests this is not the easiest of transitions and you may struggle. You may struggle not because you suck. You may struggle not because your partner sucks. You may struggle not because you're doomed, but you may struggle because couples pretty predictably and pretty reliably report that it is not easy to start to build your days around each other. It's not easy to be together, you know, to have a big spike in togetherness after having much more separateness. So that's the big picture, right? Of like, If you're going from living separately to living together, that transition is big. While you are long distance, you have micro cycles of separateness and togetherness. You visit for the weekend, then you're apart for three weeks. Then you visit for the weekend, then you're apart for two weeks. So you're kind of going back and forth between separateness and togetherness. I want you to be thinking about and reflecting on how your early experiences of hello and goodbye are shaping this. So Everything I'm about to say is all in the worksheet. Think about a time when you had to say goodbye to someone or something when you were little. How'd you cope with saying goodbye? Did you cry? Did you try to be brave? Did you protest and get angry? Did you stuff your feelings down? Who helped you cope with your feelings when you had to say goodbye? And how did they try to help you? And if you could talk to little you, who was having a hard time with that goodbye, what would you say to little you? How would you offer comfort to little you? Think of a time when you were reunited with someone after a period of being separated from them when you were little. How'd you feel when you were reunited with that person after separation? Were you relieved? Were you tentative? Were you hesitant? Were you excited? Were you scared you might lose them again? 
Were you eager to dive back in or were you a little slow to warm up? And then to what degree did the big people around you validate your feelings and reactions, whatever they were? Oof, I love that exercise. Take some time, please, and do that. Take some time with your partner and talk about that. Those early experiences of separation and reunion created the template, the foundation for how you each are going to experience separation and reunion around your long-distance relationship. So next question is, what stands out to you about your answers to those questions about your early experiences? And how might your early experiences with separation and reunion affect how you experience separation and reunion in your LDR today? What sensitivities might you have based on your early experiences? How might you need to be extra gentle with yourself given those sensitivities? How might you need your partner to be a little extra gentle with you given your sensitivities? When it's time for you and your partner to say goodbye to each other, what can or does your partner say to you that feels helpful, supportive, validating? When it's time for you and your partner to say goodbye to each other, what do you want your partner to remember about how you experience time away from them? When it's time for you and your partner to say goodbye to each other, what do you try to remember about your partner? Why is it helpful for you to remember that about your partner? What are the differences between you and your partner in terms of how you experience goodbyes? In what ways are those differences a challenge for your relationship? In what ways are those differences an asset for your relationship? What are some differences between you and your partner in terms of how you experience reunions after time apart? In what ways are those differences an asset for your relationship? What's most helpful for you to hear from your partner when you reunite with them? Why? What's least helpful for you to hear from your partner when you reunite with them? Why? Mm, 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 mm. Okay, really, really important stuff there. And all of those questions appear in the companion worksheet that you're going to get if you're a newsletter subscriber. That'll just be in your inbox. If you want to join the newsletter, you head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash subscribe, and then we will get you that worksheet. I like the idea of you journaling on those, meditating on those, talking about those with your partner. Okay, number four, expand your definition of home. When you are in your partner's town, make it your home. Make it your home away from home. Give yourselves permission when you are spending the weekend together or spending a week together, whatever, to keep some me in the we. I think that for long-distance couples, there's a risk that when you are together for a visit, you like morph into this one person that you spend all of your time together from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, that you just really, really, really get all up in each other for the weekend because time is precious and time is limited. So you have to maximize it and you have to be together, together, together. My advice to you, my guidance to you is just keep a little bit of breath in there. Keep some me in the we. If I'm the one who's traveling to you mostly and I'm getting to know your town I ought to be doing things in your town, like discovering my favorite coffee shop, 
I ought to be doing things like finding a gym in your town. Perhaps I go for a run by myself, even though I'm there to visit you. Perhaps I find a house of worship, and maybe it's not the same as your house of worship, but I have that because it helps me feel a bit more home when I'm with you. So a visit does not need to be 100% couple time. And having a little bit of me during those very, very we visits, I think, can help things feel a little more, quote unquote, normal and a little less pressured. When there's increased pressure on togetherness, it leads to increased expectations for perfection or union or merger or a steady state of joy. And when there's increased expectations, there's further to fall at the first sign of irritation or boredom. So those kind of flow together. The more we feel pressured to be together, the more we expect the time to be super duper high quality, and the more we're expecting it to be perfect and smooth and united, you know, at every moment, then there's more risk of irritation, boredom, frustration at the first sign of disconnect, at the first sign of trouble, at the first sign of I need to go be by myself for an hour. So just expand your definition of home. I like the idea of long distance couples having an expanded definition of home and creating a sense of home in each other's towns. Even though it will never feel quite the same as your hometown, figure out how to make it your own. Number five, loosen your expectations for your visits. This one really flows from the last one. Loosen your expectations for your visits. So I chose not to say reduce your expectations for your visits because I think that when I ask people to expect less, it can stir people up. It can then feel like I'm suggesting to you that you settle for less than respectful treatment or that you accept feeling like you're being taken for granted. And I'm not saying that, but I am saying that especially in a long distance relationship, visits can get so loaded up with perfectionistic visions of how things should go, what our partner should be doing or saying. So what I'm trying to capture here in this fifth strategy is wanting you to create a little bit more breathing room around your expectations and to remember that no single visit has the power to define your relationship. And if that's how it feels, that any given visit holds the power to determine whether or not you're okay as a couple, that's a blinking indicator light that something deeper is happening. Something problematic is happening because you're loading up a ton of meaning and a ton of pressure on one visit. You're trying to make one visit capture the health and stability of this relationship. And I don't want you to give that much power to any single visit. It kind of fits with this idea that we do this, I think, especially long distance couples. I mean, all of us are at risk of doing, like using sexual frequency, how often we're having sex as an indicator of how okay we are as a couple. And that is problematic. I think especially long distance couples can do this. Like how many times do we have sex during the visit and what does that say about whether or not we're okay? I don't like that. 
I don't like that for you. I don't like it for any of us because it's just too much pressure. And frequency is probably the least interesting thing about sex. There's a lot that's really interesting about sex, but how often you have it is probably the least interesting thing. If you're going to use any indicator, have it be qualitative instead of quantitative. Have it be how did we feel? How connected did we feel during the sexual experience? How present did we feel during the sexual experience? Like that's if you if you're going to do any kind of assessment of your sexual experiences, at least let it be a qualitative assessment. Like how did we feel rather than a quantitative assessment of how many times did we do it? Better still, play the long game. Take the wide lens approach and look at the overall trends or the overall tendencies in your visits. One visit might feel particularly erratically focused. Another visit might feel more like two friends getting together and hanging out. Another visit might feel like two adventurers who are seeking novel experiences together. Another visit might feel like two very weary souls who are simply spending the weekend hiding out from the world for a bit. Another visit might feel like one weary soul who is being tended to by somebody who has loving care to give. So let each visit speak for itself. Let each visit be a chapter in a very, very big love story. So don't expect visits to be the same. Don't expect visits to be hitting the same mark, that there's one unitary mark of a good visit or a happy visit or a quality visit. Like let the visits take on different textures and different tones because your relationship as a whole has different textures and tones and features and facets. And some of those features and facets may stand out more in one visit, and other features and facets may stand out more in another visit. So keep your eye out for when your perfectionistic expectations of yourself, of your partner, of the visit, like when those are creeping up, because those perfectionistic expectations have the power to really suck the fun out of a visit. You know it's time to reduce your expectations for the visit or to loosen your expectations for the visit when you, one, feel urgency, anxiety, pressure, hastiness, irritation in your body versus ease. That's an indicator to you that it's time to loosen your expectations. Two, when your thoughts sound like this. We should be having more fun. We're running out of time. Three, when your actions are being driven more by fear than love, more by scarcity than trust. That's how you know that it's time to loosen your expectations. And here are four things you can do to loosen your expectations. First, literally loosen your body. Go for a run. Go for a walk have a dance party, like move your body to release some of that tension, to help you feel more trusting, more mindful, more playful, less tight. Two, try a mantra. You know I love a mantra. When the urgency creeps in, put your hand on your heart and say out loud or to yourself, our big, messy, bodacious relationship cannot be captured and reflected in what happens in this one visit. Or this visit does not need to be perfect 
to be precious. Or I am allowing versus controlling the unfolding of this visit. Or simply, I am present and open. Number three, invite or ask for what you want from your partner rather than demand. If your expectations are really tight, it's not going to be an ask that comes out of your mouth. It's going to be a demand. So the ask would sound like, I would love to blah, blah, blah. Or I think it'd be really fun for us to blah, blah, blah. Versus we should, or why aren't we, or why aren't you? So that third one is invite or ask rather than demand. And then number four is to just create a framework before the visit, a framework that ensures that you prioritize the time and energy for the activities or the conversations that matter the most to one or both of you. So before you go into the visit, identify one or two or maybe three things that feel most important, where you want to place your time and your energy. And there's very likely some variability between the two of you. One of you might like to schedule your visit down to the hour and make reservations and buy tickets. And the other one of you might like the visit to unfold a bit more. And that's, you know, I mean, take any couple on the planet and there's a difference between the two of them around how much scheduling versus how much go with the flow they bring to the relationship. That's just a very common relational difference. And it is highlighted and amplified for long distance couples because you are making a structure for a limited amount of time. So your job as a couple is to feel your way into the amount of structure that maximizes both flexibility and flow for the partner who prefers less structure and clarity and predictability for the partner who prefers more structure. And so the way you get to that is by identifying the one or two or three things that feel like they're the top priority for the visit, you know, and kind of building those in, prioritizing those and uh, letting the rest of it perhaps, you know, flow from there. And again, those one or two or three things are not the things that need to be perfect, joyful, awesome, amazing, but the one, two or three things that we really want to make sure we show up for that we really want to make sure that we're present for. Okay, we did it. Final reminder that the companion worksheet for this episode is going to be in your inbox if you are a newsletter subscriber. If you are not a newsletter subscriber, you should be, you could be, and you just go to dralexandersolomon.com slash subscribe. You get on the newsletter and we send you the worksheet. I really hope that this episode gave you a fresh perspective on your long-distance relationship, and I hope that it opens up some new possibilities for how the two of you talk together about both the strains and the opportunities that you have in this chapter of your love story. Okay, that's all for today. Take good care, and until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Katie Pagich of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. 
Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.